I'd like to wish everyone a good evening. And it is 7 o'clock, which means it's time to begin our Wednesday evening Bible study period. I encourage you to take a Bible, follow along, read, uh, discuss, question. Uh, not that we'll always know the answers, at least I won't know the answers, but we've got a lot of smart people who know the answers. Uh, but more importantly, just to study, to learn more about these people of God, their mistakes, their successes, and uh, encourage you to open to Genesis 35. We are going to be in 35 tonight, and look forward to our study together this evening. Uh, before we begin, let's take a moment and pray to our Father, and then we'll, we'll commence. Our Father, our God, our Creator, we are very thankful for the kindness and the love that you've continually shown to us in the way that you have sent your Son, and that his sacrifice means the world and more to us. Thank you, Father, for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Father, for this occasion that brings us together tonight, studying your word, being able to be engaged in understanding your people, their good choices, their poor choices, and learning from it. Be with those who are learning tonight in the younger classes. We thank you for all of our teachers. We thank you for all of our parents. We thank you for every member of this good congregation. We ask that you'll bless those who are not here because they're struggling with some illness or are shut in at home or having medical procedures from which they're recovering. Bless them all. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've had, uh, we are now uh, in the closing hours of our study together. Tonight we are going to look at chapter 35. Um, of, the, of the four chapters we're looking at tonight, 35, 36, 37, 38, I think it would be safe to say that 36 is the least familiar it's the slightly more challenging section because it deals with some genealogy of Esau. We'll talk about 36 for just a few moments. Uh, 37 is where the majority of our time is going to be spent tonight. And that's the chapter with which we have the most familiarity because that's our real introduction to Joseph and the dreams and all the challenges that he begins to face. But I want to start in chapter 35 where God says to Jacob in verse 1, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now notice verse 2. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. So a couple of things about this particular passage. This is not the first time where you have an altar being made by Abraham, by Isaac, uh, by these great patriarchs, these characters. However, uh, this is the first time, at least as I can find it, in the preceding 34 chapters where God actually commands an altar to be made. And it's also interesting that as soon as he makes that command uh, or that request, uh, I guess God doesn't make requests. Well, he does. We just get to determine whether or not we're going to obey those requests, those commands or not. But verse 2, what does Jacob do? He instructs all of his household and all of his people 
to put away all the foreign gods, to purify themselves, to change their clothes. And I put up there that that's kind of a great picture of repentance. Now, you could ask the question, why had that not already been done? And I think that's a fair question. We know who had, who had stolen some idols uh, just a couple of chapters before. That was Rachel, right? She had hidden them. We talked about that last week. And so presumably that would be some of the idols, some of the gods, little g-gods, that were now found that needed to be cleansed. Incidentally, it's not recorded here how uh, Jacob responded to when those idols were unearthed or uncovered. And I, I, I wonder if at some point Jacob thought, hmm, where did those come from? Wait a minute, aren't those the ones that Laban was asking about back a couple chapters earlier? Uh, I don't know. But it does make you wonder what Jacob thought. Uh, and we've, we've talked about over the last three sessions about Rachel's spiritual maturity issues as compared with Leah's, and maybe there's something to be said for that. Uh, then, interestingly enough, I just thought I'd point this out because I thought it was interesting, and I don't know why for sure we could speculate, uh, but we're not in the business of speculating at least too much. But verse 8, it says, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel, under the terebinth tree, so the name of the place was called Alan Bakuth, uh, there in verse 8. It is interesting to me and to others who have studied this, and I was doing some reading on this in the last uh, few weeks and months, that Deborah's death is mentioned. Number one, because women's deaths are not recorded real frequently, although we, we do see the death of Leah, we see the death of Rachel, as we're going to talk about here in just a, a couple of seconds. But Deborah was not a figure of importance, at least in the big, broad story here, except that she was Rebecca's nurse. That would have been uh, Jacob's mother's nurse, so there would have been some familiarity between them. Uh, some have suggested that this is kind of marking the end of that era, that that generation of people, Isaac, Rebecca, and now Deborah, are now exiting stage left. And consequently, they're no longer a part of the major storyline that's going forward. And as we know, that once we get to chapter 37, there's a, a pretty significant shift, especially in chapter 39, that the final um, 12 chapters are exclusively reserved for a study of one character, which we'll get into really next week. Uh, the other interesting thing here is I wanted to read verses 16 through 20 real quickly here. 16 says, They journeyed from death Bethel, and there they built they, there but a little distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Uh, it came to pass when she was in hard labor, the midwife said, Do not fear, you will have this son also. So it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, or Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Uh, we talked about that a little bit when we had that big long chart of all the different names. And she nicknames her son Ben-Oni or Ben-Oni. Son, literally, my Bible has a, a footnote, yours probably does as well, where it says son of sorrow or son of my sorrow. Whereas Benjamin means son of the right hand or the right hand man. And so uh, Joseph 
and Benjamin end up becoming the two favorite children of Jacob because they were the children of his favorite wife, Rachel. And of course, that favoritism plays a little bit of a, not a little bit, a big role in the story that goes forward for the next 13 or 14 chapters. Remember that when we get to our last minute applications uh, tonight. Okay, then uh, I, I mentioned at the outset a lot of questions without answers. And so tonight I'm here. Uh, I was on a Zoom call yesterday with uh, about 12 or 14 brethren from England and the Netherlands, and we were studying, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, but we were studying something else yesterday. And I won't tell you who the preacher is, you can, you, all of you would know him, but he's 80-some years old, and he started out by saying, I'm going to ask a whole lot of questions and not have a whole lot of answers. So I figured if he can do that after 60 years of studying the Bible, I can do it after a few years. Um, but... Uh, verse 21, Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And then verse 22, just a very passing reference to Reuben and Bilhah. Who was Bilhah? She was a, she was a handmaid to uh, uh, Leah, right? And so she was a mother of some of Jacob's children. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Doesn't it say what he what he said or how he reacted or what his response was, but it is interesting that there is a passing reference to it, and then there's nothing more said about it. Although you could argue that there is something more said about it because Reuben, along with Simeon and Levi seems to be kind of, re, not kind of, but rejected in terms of being who's going to be the, uh, of the bloodline of, of the Messiah. Then again, Judah has his issues, which again, remember our application as it's going to come up later tonight. Um, okay, and then the last thing here in chapter 35 is the death of Isaac. Uh, it says that the days of Isaac were 180 years so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Interestingly enough, that very last phrase, Esau and Jacob buried him, apparently uh, their grievances, which had been talked about two previous classes, have now fully, or at least they seem to be fully resolved. And that they are, in, and that's someone made the point that death has a way of bringing people together. Uh, and that may very well be the case with the death of their father. Anything on chapter 35, and Brother Bill's got the microphone, just raise your hand. And if you've got something long that you want to say, just shout out if it's something short. Okay, let's go ahead to 36. Like I said, we're only going to spend a moment or two on chapter 36. I'm not about to tell you that I'm an expert on chapter 36 so that I can explain everything about chapter 36. Because in many ways... It is almost exclusively the story of Esau and Edom. Uh, and it's kind of a, a short little pause in the narrative about Jacob and his sons and, and Moses, the likely author, uh, by way of the Holy Spirit says, let's spend some time talking about the genealogy or talking about of Esau, who is Edom there in chapter 36, verse 1. Um, one of the things that is interesting to note is verse 2, Esau took his wives from the daughter of Canaan. 
And we know that that was a problem. Remember back in chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, that the reference that was made is that it was a grief, that his, his, his choice in marriage was a grief to his parents. Uh, and remember that he ended up marrying some better people, presumably better people, at least on the surface, to kind of satisfy his parents a couple of chapters after that. Um, how is Esau, without giving away the answer, what does his future look like for him and his family? And there's a couple ways you can answer that. And not a trick question, but how do things work out for Esau and his family? Let me ask financially. Well, they end up very, very well. I see thumbs up, yeah. Uh, God had said that Esau even though he's not going to be the one through whom the Messiah and the seed is going to come. And we talk about the seed, the story of salvation, the three S's of the story of Genesis, that it's not that he's going to be the one through whom that's going to come, but Esau, like Ishmael, like others uh, that are not the chosen ones, end up having great families come as a result of them. So Esau is greatly blessed. Verse 6, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughter, all the persons of his house, all the cattle, all his animals, all the goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, went to the country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. So presumably, strike out on his own. Uh, there's so much property that he has that he has to have property. So much livestock that he has that he has to have an area for them. Their possessions were too great to dwell together, as was said there in verse 7. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom, in case there was any confusion about that. I have a book. I may have made reference to this. If you want to borrow it, you can. Uh, and it's a red book. It's a red paperback book. And you can ask me later who the author is. Some, some of you know who the author is. Uh, but it's about 70 pages on Edom. It is one of the most challenging things I've ever read in my life. There's <laughs> 70 pages of going on about the Edomites. And the whole point of, of the story was is it ends up, they end up becoming this picture of the anti-Israel, anti-Jacob, anti-God faction. Uh, and you have some famous instances of that in the Old Testament. You have, if you're familiar with Obadiah, a very short book, but Obadiah is very much focused on how Edom uh, was a thorn in the side of Jacob and his people going forward. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, the next 30 verses or so down through verse 43 is a lengthy genealogy which seems to me to be inserted into the text primarily to illustrate that God is going to make Edom a great nation as well. If nothing else, we get out of chapter 36 proof perfect that God has promised that he's going to bless Esau and his, and his family and he does so dramatically so. All right, anything else on 36 or 35, if you have to think about something from 35? Bill is at the ready. He's on the, he's ready. Did you have something? Okay, all right. All right, let's go ahead to chapter 37. And 37 is, without a doubt, uh, the most familiar, um, preached, taught in Bible classes. We memorize these stories. Uh, I can still remember being you know, second or third grade and seeing stars and moons and sheaves and different images on the bulletin board or on the felt board um, uh, or drawings of them to illustrate the stories of chapter 37. It's a relatively lengthy chapter. It's 36 verses. 
uh, and we're not going to read all of it, but we are going to outline it just in terms of the, the, the 10 key events or so that transpire. Um, chapter 37, verse 3 says, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. That's a very important statement. So once that statement is made, and once that's understood as part of the story, um, that becomes um, a key focal point. Before we get to that, I forgot I had, had these two other statements that were in there uh, that I wanted to point out here. Uh, yeah, in verse... Uh, chapter 37 begins the last section of Genesis where the focus is jo Judah and Joseph. And I wanted to point that out. So you have the last 14 chapters where you have Judah being the focus of chapter 38 and getting a couple of highlights in the other chapters, but almost exclusively this is the story of Joseph, and this is Joseph, and this is the pre-Exodus study. This is everything that is starting with getting them to Egypt so that they can be in bondage for that period of, of years. The other thing that is interesting to point out is that by skipping the first three sons, now we're focusing on son number four and then son number, I guess, 11 in terms of numbering um, would be right, yeah. Uh, so we're skipping Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Um, any thoughts on, and, and I've kind of already given the answer away a little bit, but why we're, why, not why we're skipping, but why is God seemingly skipping Reuben, Simeon, and Levi? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Bill? So, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit on Reuben, and, and uh, Jacob's going to talk about it in Genesis 49, where he talks about why Reuben gets skipped over. But I, I've always thought of it as the convention of the time is you have to go through the firstborn, and you have to, that's how your family's successful and maintains its success. And God is saying, look, I don't have to use human convention to bring about I like that. my... Uh, my uh, my Messiah, your Messiah, excuse me. Uh, so I, that's, that's the way I've always thought of it. I like the word convention you used there, yeah. What had, the other, the other part of that puzzle, and I, I think Bill's onto something. One, God says, I can take the, the system and I can blow up the system and do something great with it. Incidentally, application, when I have three of them to close with tonight, and one of them kind of slightly deals with this, is we might not look like conventional servants of God. John the baptizer looked like a crazy man, right, as recorded in the scripture. But he was a wild man, but yet was exactly what God wanted. Jesus did not look the part according to the prophet. Um, Simeon and Levi were involved in what particular event two classes ago? Remember? They were the slaughter of the Shechemites, right? So you know, it could be an argument that God says, I'm going to skip them as well. And, and I like what Bill says because, it, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but if you haven't read chapter 38 yet, Judah is no perfect character. It's not like he's sterling in his uh, behavior as well. Uh, okay, excellent, excellent points here. Uh, how old uh, was Joseph as this story begins? I skipped over that verse, verse 2. He's 17. So I remember years and years and years ago, there was a sermon that was preached at a gospel meeting called The Story of a 17-Year-Old Boy. And the reason I remember this is I was probably 12 at the time, and the preacher ended up 
uh, at our local congregation ended up getting sick the very next Sunday. And so they, everyone, you know, you know, one of those things where you all kind of look at each other and you're like, you preaching? You preaching? <laughs> kind of thing. So my dad got the, the short end of the straws, I guess. And uh, so what did he preach? A story of a 17-year-old boy. So you just steal from someone else, um, which is what we all do. It's where the best sermons come from. Uh, I steal all mine from David. <laughs> That's why mine are so good. Uh, but uh, Joseph was 17 years old. Incidentally, I had not noticed this until someone really went back and kind of peeled apart some pages and stuff. But Jacob would live in Egypt for the same amount of time. If you look at chapter 47, verse 28, Jacob ends up going to Egypt and lives there for 17 years before he dies. So it's kind of a nice book beginning and book ending to the story of this 17-year period. Does that make sense what I'm saying? 17 years and then living in Egypt. Okay, good. Once sure I worded it very well up there. Okay. Um, verse 4. Uh, well, let's go back. Verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. This is something that everyone, even people who are not religious or churchgoers, a lot of them know about Joseph and the coat of many colors, right? The tunic of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Hate is a strong word, but that's the word that's used in the New King James Version and in most versions. Um, and the other thing that we did not talk about is verse 2. Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So Joseph brought a bad report to his father, Jacob. There are some different ways of seeing this. There's, there's two kind of classic ways of looking at this. Either one, Joseph is being a snitch, I heard someone say, and just not being real nice about it. The other way of looking at it is, look at verse 14, where Jacob would actually say to Joseph, go and see if everything is well with your brothers. It could be that Joseph was playing a role that Jacob had asked him to play and be the reporter as to what was going on. Either way, it's going to land him in trouble. The other thing about the coat of many colors is, what is true about the coat of many colors? Well, it's, it's uncommon. Uh, it's valuable. It's going to be... Uh, someone suggested that it is a garment that is associated with a superintendent as opposed to something that you would wear while working out on the farm. So you've got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulon, and those guys. They're out working, uh, sweating, and here comes nicely dressed Joseph, and he says, I'm here to take a report. And by the way, it's not a good report. I'm going back to dad and I'm going to tell him what you've done wrong. So you can just see how all these things. Now, some of this is could be, could be. And we, we don't, again, we don't know the tone of this, Joseph's fault. But ultimately, Jacob, back in verse 2 or, or, or verse 3, loved Joseph more than all his children. When you play favoritism, whether it be with your children or whether it be with people in general, um, what does James 2 say about God and partiality? He says he doesn't have any partiality. He treats us the same. Um, 
he doesn't favor one over the other. So that's just kind of an interesting thing to think about here. So uh, we mentioned Joseph's coat and the favoritism that Jacob had over him. And then Joseph has a series of dreams. Now someone would <laughs> ask rightly, so why in the world did he volunteer these dreams to his brothers? Uh, it's possible if he has a poor attitude, he's doing it to say, hey, look, these dreams I'm having. Um, some have suggested that he was just excited about his dreams. Uh, just, wow, look at this dream I had. Um, and, but he has two dreams uh, that ha have striking similarities. Dream number one involves what? And I, and I mentioned it a few minutes ago. Sheaves, right? The sheaves of crops that are bowing down, presumably to the younger, to Jacob. And then the second one, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing at Shane back there because uh, the lights are on the timer and Shane's in the dark uh, <laughs> in more than one way. Uh, what was the second dream? Not just she's, but stars, stars and the moon, right? And, and the interpretation is pretty simple. Verse 10, uh, or verse 9, Look, I have dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to me, verse 9. So when he told this to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him. Now, I'm told that in the Hebrew language, that word rebuke is, it really means rebuke. It's not just, oh, bless your heart. It was shame on you for, for dreaming such a thing or uh, having the connotation of almost a screaming was one uh, Hebrew person's understanding of the word rebuke here. What is it this dream that you dream? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed bow down on the earth to the earth before you? The brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind, or kept the matter uh, is a more literal way of reading that. So for whatever reason, uh, Jacob kind of stores this in his head. Uh, does this come true? Of course it does. We all know that. We all, and if you don't know that story, I'm sorry to give the answer away. But go ahead and read the remaining 13, 14 chapters, and you'll see this comes true, where Joseph becomes the focal point of the story and the savior of not only uh, his own people, but of the, the region, the known world, uh, benefits as a result of, of his leadership. So the brothers are upset. The Bible says that they hated their brother. And so what is the initial plan to do with him? Initially. Not what ends up happening. What, what was the initial plan? Kill him. Kill him. When in doubt, and you get mad at someone, just kill him. After all, that's what Cain did to Abel. That's what we've seen happen on other occasions. You get mad at people or mad at persons, you kill them. And so the initial plan here was to kill him. Who steps in and says, time out? Reuben steps in. And Reuben is which son? Which of, in, in which order? He's the oldest. So he kind of uh, redeems himself on this particular occasion. And again, one of the applications that we continue to make is that none of these guys are perfect. They all have their strengths and they all have their weaknesses. Uh, and so Reuben steps in. Why him? Some would suggest that he's, he is trying to redeem himself. Reuben says in verse 22, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, 
Do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben wants to, the way I'm reading it, wants to put him in the pit, not to leave him there forever, but eventually, you know, hoping that the brothers will calm down and, you know, give him a few hours and uh, then maybe he can spare his life in some way. Instead, what do they end up doing? They put him in the pit, and then they say, look, who's coming? The Ishmaelites. Later, they're called the Midianites. And if you look at Judges 8, verses 22 through 25, I didn't write it down. There are a couple of occasions in the Old Testament where you see those words interchanged. And that would make sense because they come from the same family. Everyone goes back to Abraham anyway uh, of, of, of these key people here. You see the selling of Joseph, and then how do they explain their plan, or how do they explain the mysterious disappearance of Joseph to their, to their father? They take the coat, dip it in blood, and they say that, or, well, sorry, they don't say, but he concludes that some animal has devoured him, some beast has devoured him, Right? Let's go back and look at those verses here because there's an interesting thing that I had never picked up on before until recently. Uh, they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood uh, in verse 31. And then as he recognized it, he says, It's my son's tunic, verse 33. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And of course, rather than saying... No, Dad, that really didn't happen, so stop your crying. They let him believe that. Uh, and so you go another three, four, five, six chapters in the story of Genesis where Jacob continues to believe that his son is dead. In fact, when uh, they want to take Benjamin, uh, he says, and I made reference to this on Sunday in chapter 42, I think it is, that he says, shall I lose yet another son in so many words. I put up there the goat irony. Um, remember that when Jacob deceived his father, they took the fur of the animal and put it on his arm. And now a goat has been killed to deceive him. We talked about what comes around and goes around. And that's kind of... And that won't be the last reference to a goat in Genesis. So if you want to do a study on goats in Genesis, have at it. Um, because there's lots of them. Uh, and they all play this kind of interesting role. Uh, and there's some irony there. Anything else on chapter 37? The chapter with which we are by far the most familiar. Alright, we've got 13 minutes left to get through 38. And some observations. And that should be very doable. Chapter 38 is kind of a, a, the way I look at it, a great big parenthesis. Before we get back to Joseph, Moses says, I want to talk to you about Judah. Because Judah is an important character. We know that Judah uh, gets a, um, a big kind of shout out in chapter 49. We know that he gets a major um, place in the role of the Messiah. Uh, some have suggested that the book of Genesis may not be always written chronologically. Whether it is or not, I have no idea. But this may be one of those occasions where 
this story is inserted here by the Holy Spirit before we move on to Joseph. Because 39 through 50 is almost exclusively the story of Joseph, Egypt, famine, rescue, go to Egypt, reunite, all that kind of stuff. All right, so let's look at chapter 38 for our final few minutes here together. Uh, chapter 38, verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So in the first two verses, we already have enough information to determine probably what's going to happen next. Or at least how this is going to turn out. There has never been an occasion where uh, up, up to this point where someone says, huh, I'm going to go marry a Canaanite, someone who is an idol worshiper, and I bet it's going to work out splendidly for me. And so Judah goes, and what does he do? He marries a Canaanite woman by the name of Shua, whose name was Shua. And he married her and went in to her. Uh, verse 3, interesting kind of as an um, opposite of what we've seen so far. She conceived and bore a son. So many of the stories of Genesis are of women struggling to conceive, and then, man, they get married, and, man, she's pregnant. Now, we don't know how much time happens, but it seems to be a pretty quick uh, pregnancy on their part, her part. And she conceived and bore a son, and let's look at the three sons here. Uh, this is the original My Three Sons. She conceived and bore a son called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son called his name Onan. She conceived again and the third son, as you see there in verse, what verse is it? Here we drop down. What verse is it? Right there in verse 5. Called his name Shelah or Shaliah. So you have three sons, and I put them up there in capital letters because knowing them is important. Uh, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Uh, those three sons are born to them. Uh, er marries who? Tamar. Er marries Tamar, but is killed by God. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Someone check this out for me for next week, but I think I remember that I think this is the first time that you have the, the phrase, the Lord killed him. We know that God kills people throughout the history of the Bible, where God, I'm not talking about someone else killing someone. Uh, I'm talking where God says, I'm going to kill him. I think, this is the, I think this is the first time where God says, I'm, I'm going to kill him, or I do kill him, or I, or I killed him, as recorded. But someone check that out for me. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I, I'm not trying to be. Um, but I think it's the first time that actually happens here. It doesn't say what Er actually did. It just says he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so that the Lord killed him. And then uh, you have to be somewhat familiar with the custom of the time, which I'm told was well known even in the absence. Let me turn my page over here. Even in the absence of Deuteronomy 25, where you see Leverit or Leverite marriages, you already have that as a kind of a key principle that if a man dies who and leaves the woman without her husband, what should happen? 
the, the brother comes in and then provides for her, right? Of course, this is at a, at a time where financially, among everything else, you've got to have a, 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 it sounds, I'm not trying to sound sexist, but you have to have a man in order to have money back then because that was pretty much the way it was. Uh, and having a child was very important, as we've talked about throughout the entire study of Genesis, right? However, if Onan comes and marries uh, Tamar and their son's name is Bob, Bob is not a child of Onan. Bob will be known as a child of who? Heir, right? And Onan didn't like that. So Onan says, I'm not going to do it. So what, what happens to Onan? God kills him. So what's the problem with Shelah? Why can't Shelah be married? He's too young. So Judah says to Tamar, I'm really sorry this has happened to you. I'm not sure how sorry he was based on everything that ends up happening. But he says, I'm sorry uh, that this has happened. And just hang tight. In no time, <laughs> Shayla will be old enough and he can marry you. And Tamar's response was, okay, I can live with that. Um, so Onan is killed by God. We talked about that. Shayla is promised by Judah. And then verse 14 of chapter 38 she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself in satin in an open place, which was on the way. For she saw that Shayla was grown. So now he's old enough, and she was not given to him as a wife. So uh, this, all, this plan does not come to fruition. That promise isn't fulfilled. And then in verse 15, when Judah saw her, now Judah... Uh, Judah's wife died. When, this, when he saw her, he thought, verse 15, now the Bible is very clear. Sometimes the Bible is a little bit ambiguous about certain things, but here the Bible is very clear. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Now the appropriate thing for Judah would have been, number one, you could argue maybe not be there in the first place because uh, even though sheep shearing in and of itself was not sinful, uh, there seems to be some historical evidence that there's a lot of drinking going on, that there's a lot of carousing going on, a lot of partying going on, and so that's why harlots were going to be in that place. So Judah's response should have been, I'm sorry, I cannot be in this place. I need to go someplace different where I'm not going to be tempted. That should have been his response, right? But of course, that's not his response. He turned to her, by the way, and said, please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? So just, I mean, very matter of fact uh, about this particular thing. Um, so Judah here makes some very poor choices. Um, and what does he offer? That sounds reasonable, a goat, right? So there's the goat again to make his appearance in the story of Genesis. Um, and a goat would have been important. Not only would it, could it be traded for money, but... If these were temple prostitutes, uh, or not temple prostitutes, I guess, well, I don't know. If these were religious prostitutes, maybe say it more correctly, if these were religious prostitutes, that may have been necessary as a part of their practice as well. So what ends up happening? What's the next little piece of the story as the thick plot, as the plot thickens? 
He gets pregnant. I mean, you have all these women who are saying, please, I'd like to have a child. Please let me have a child. And boom, man, she's pregnant. She's pregnant. Three months come along. Now she's I'm assuming that she's starting to show, or at least getting close to showing here. Does the text say? What verse are we looking at here? Three months, Judah was told, send Tamar, your daughter-in-law, always play the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child by harlot. So they knew about it. Judah said, bring her out and let her be what? Let her be killed. Let her be burned. Now, so, oh, and I, I didn't, uh, I, I mentioned the pledge as well. So he didn't have a goat on him at the time. <laughs> so he had to write a note saying, I promise to give you a goat by giving the staff or the signet. Someone compared it to kind of a, a business card uh, or a contract or even a credit card where you hold it as a down payment. Like if you're going to reserve a hotel room, you got to give your credit card. They won't charge you. But she says, I'll charge your credit card. I'll take this from you. I'm use this as proof. Little does he know it's going to be used as proof because they say, well, who, who, who's involved in this? Verse 26, uh, verse 24, came to pass, Tamar, your daughter-in-law is by the harlot. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Judah's reaction to the news of Tamar's pregnancy, we talked about that. And then Judah is, I put up there, humbled by Tamar. So here you have an outsider who is incidentally going to be listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, along with Rahab, um, the two kind of big-ticket women that are listed. Uh, and you have this poor choice that has now led to this. Tamar ends up giving birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Um, the text is uh, in here for a couple of reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons why I'm sure the text is here is because we're getting ready to get into Joseph. What's going to happen to Joseph in chapter 39? What's the big thing that happens in chapter 39? This is... He refuses the entreaty of Mrs. Potiphar, right? And so in some ways, this text is helpful in comparing Joseph's wise choice of saying, I will not sin against Potiphar. I will not sin against God. Compared to Judah... His brother, who should have known better, who's making all these horrific choices and just really messing up um, his reputation. All right. Anything in the final three minutes? I've got three applications, but anything? Um, everyone's been so... You guys are great listeners, by the way. Not only during Bible classes, but during sermons. People very attentive. We, David and I appreciate that. and So do Bill and Carrie in their class as well, I'm sure. Let me share with you three real quick takeaways. Number one, repentance, going back to where we started. Repentance and full repentance is necessary in order to really please the Lord. The reason I brought that out is because, remember back in chapter 35, put away the idols, purify yourselves, and purify your clothes. There needs to be this, this complete cleansing. So we can't just partially repent. We can't just put away some of the things. Remember that phrase, put away. So I'm going to talk about that phrase, put away, Sunday. Sunday evening, Lord willing, in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, number two, favoritism can have devastating and really long-term effects. Uh, that's why God isn't, doesn't play favorites with us. That's why God does not show partiality towards, the, towards us. I should have put up James chapter 2. 
there. And then thirdly, God is merciful. And he, here, here it is. Here's the big one. He uses imperfect people to carry out his plans and people who are outside of the convention. I love the word that Bill used there. In fact, I might go and put that into the PowerPoint for store that. Um, God is able to use people that even in spite of their imperfections are able to do still good things. And we all have our imperfections. We all have our mistakes. We all have our issues and regrets. But God says, I can still use you. And that's a wonderful message that we can walk away with tonight. Anything in the final 45 seconds? All right, I'll give you back those 40 seconds bonus. And uh, we'll let the children come out of their classes. Thank you all very, very much, uh, sincerely, for your kind attention.